Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 1 in our teaching series, A Study of the Book of Acts with Paul's Writings, titled Introduction to the Book of Acts. Our teacher is Alan Smith. We do welcome you here today and so glad that you're here as we seek to get into God's Word and the Word, the year that many are saying that 2024 is the year of war. And I'm not really sure what to do with that, except I feel that if we're, it's obvious we're, I'm not sure that we're going to war. It seems like to me we're in a war. And with that said, the what do we do about it? And what we do about it is we read God's Word, find out what's true, what's going on, and then how we can, what we can do about it. I do welcome those that are watching online also. We have a, this day and time, a pretty good online congregation, if you will. So we thank you for being with us. I'm going to uh, start today in the book of Acts, and it is somewhat, I'll not call it that, I call it the teaching on the book of Acts, but it is still somewhat a continuation of as in the days of Noah. And the reason I say that is, as Christians, we need to understand that the whole New Testament is written in light of as in the days of Noah. It was the time and is the time. I think it was the days of Noah then, as I think it is now. And that sets up how we're to think, how we're to act, how do we respond to what we're seeing, to what we're going on. And it also challenges us of how much in love of the world we are and how much of the love of the kingdom of God we are. And, and I have uh, had some a little bit of criticism from time to time on how that I tend to take away from people enjoying the world just because I speak about end times. And the reason I speak about end times is because the Bible speaks about end times. If you come to my farm, talk to me about cows, I'll talk about the end times of that cow, I guess. I don't know. To me, everything in life comes to a conclusion sometime or another. Everything has a beginning, has, a, has an end, have you noticed? And so it's not that I'm so bent on, it's not that I'm how can you be faithful to the text? But I do have in great anticipation of the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I know the way God's going to do this thing doesn't necessarily build, suit our building program. Let me say it that way. God's building program, God's program of how he's going to do this thing is not necessarily, I guess if we're making plans to stay here for eternity, we might be disappointed. But our eternity is not here. It's with Christ this was ruling and reigning with him. Now, as we get into the book of Acts, now this morning we're going to go over some of the um, information that's needed as we proceed. But the book of Acts is an incredible, in one sense of the word, historical document of what has gone on in the world and what was going on in the world at that time as far as a historical documents considered. Now, as we begin this book of Acts, I will be using the King James Version of the Bible. You can use any version you'd like. Using many notes from various scholars down through the ages of the church, including the Ryrie Study Bible, Thompson Chain, Schofield, and many others such as Chuck Missler and other teachers of the Word of God that I hold in high regard. I make no claim to anything original on my part. I consider myself an elementary student just seeking truth and guidance from God. So that's my disclaimer as we move forward. So in the New Testament, we have, I want to set this framework up just a little bit. We're looking at the New Testament as a whole quickly. We have the Gospels and Acts. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts that we tend to group together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we got the Acts. I'm calling it here volume two of the book of Luke. 
So when we go into the book of Acts, you could read the book of Luke at the ending of book of Luke, then you start in Acts chapter 1, and you can see how the book of Acts is a continuation of actually of the book of Luke, or Luke volume 2, I'll call it here, for teaching purposes. Then we got Paul's epistles, we got Romans, we got First and Second Corinthians, we got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. The book of Hebrews. I put Hebrews, yes, as a book written by Paul. Can we verify that? The answer is no. So you can put it anywhere you want to, and I will too. I put it as a Paul's a writer. Feels Pauline to me. Then we got what we call the Hebrew epistles, and we got James, first and second Peter, first, second, third John. Then we got the book of Jude. Then the prophetic book, of course, is the book of Revelation. So that's kind of a, if you will, a little bit of a grouping or a division of the New Testament scriptures. Now, in the book of Acts, the writer, of course, is Luke, the apostle. We have to assume and accept that he was chosen by the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke was considered a scholar of the Greek language and regarded as one of the best when writing historical literature. It so happens that his writings and documentation of the historical timelines are considered one of the best. It is a continuation of the book of Luke, which I just mentioned. Now, we'll just look in Acts 1, chapter 1, and uh, verse 1 here. As we, and you can open your Bibles if you'd like to Acts chapter 1, because this is where we'll be doing a lot of reading of text as I'm doing just a little bit of an overview of the book before we begin. I like to like in the book of Acts, a historical document, if you will. I like to show where it begins, and then I like to show where it ends. And the reason I do that is so we know where we're, kind of where we're headed. We'll give the beginning of the book, and then we're going to do the ending of the book or how it concludes. Now in Acts 1.1, it says here, The former treatises have I made, O Theopolises, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so you can see here that he says the former. You see that? The former writing. So he refers here to his writing of the book of Luke here when he says the former treatise have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So he's saying in his first writing, he began with what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, which that will be in this chapter. I mean, in the last part of Luke, he's taken up, and then we get into the first chapter. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So we see here the former, referring to the book, his writings of Luke, he has began both to do and teach. So the focus here, it begins in the book of Acts. It's called, a lot of times in your Bible study, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Just about in all of your quotes or writings, it'll say Acts of the Apostles. But basically you have Peter and Paul are the two main characters in the book of Acts, but they still call it the Acts of the Apostles because it does include all of the apostles for sure. So therefore, Luke wrote down what Jesus had done and was doing through the Holy Spirit. So the first, the book of Luke writes about Jesus's earthly ministry. So it's of good fashion, we would say, or it is understandable that Luke would be the one writing the Acts, because he wrote about Jesus's life, and then he writes about 
the book of Acts, where Jesus ascends at the last part of Luke, and then his Holy, he sends his Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and it's in chapter 2, which is a tremendously one of the most incredible moves of God upon the planet. Now, we see the Holy Spirit will come in Acts 2, but I would like for you to consider that when the Holy Spirit comes, it's just a continuation of Jesus. A lot of times when we get to Acts 2 and the Holy Spirit falls and all this, we start thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit's the third person. It is. But the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. We talk about the presence of God in a congregational meeting or to feel the presence of God in our life or in worship. We say we can feel the presence. Well, the continuation, the Holy Spirit, when you sense the presence of the Holy Spirit, that presence is Jesus himself is what we want to start taking note here. So I could say that the book of Acts is the book of a continuation of Jesus, even though we know his ascension. But start, just consider as we move forward that when the Holy Spirit comes, it's the presence of Christ still in the same. So as Luke is writing the book of Acts, he's considering himself still writing on the continuation of, the, of who Christ is. The revelation of him. That's when John gets to the book of Revelation that John says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we start catching on the center points, the center point of scripture of New Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. So that's always the focal point. So it's important to realize and to understand when you're trying to discover what scripture is saying just remember the underlying theme is headed towards who is Christ, right? And that helps us in interpretation of what's going on. The date written, uh, Acts concludes with the account of Paul's earliest ministry in Rome, A.D. 65. Now that's actually in Acts 28 and appears to have been written at or near that time. So we're saying that it's written around A.D. 65. Now here's what's interesting. And as Bible students, here's what I want you to catch through this teaching. But it began 32, three years before then. So you read Acts chapter 1, you're talking somewhere around A.D. 33. So as we start reading Acts chapter 1, it's referring to A.D. 33. It was actually penned or written around A.D. 65. Now, there's something I want us to start, that is, I'll keep referring to that. And as I keep referring to it, Please don't get aggravated at me for referring to it. I just know the more I refer to these dates and when something's revealed, that you'll start catching what I'm saying. When studying the New Testament, you might want to write down this term. We speak in light of what we call progressive revelation. If you'd like to write down that term, it's called progressive revelation. And that means that God's revelation is progressive in nature. In other words, at 71 years old, I have more of the progressive revelation. One of the key elements of understanding the New Testament, one of the key things, this is one of many, but one of the key things is that we understand that the book of Acts is a historical, one part of the book of Acts is it's a historical in nature, and it's covering a period of a little over 30 years. So in understanding that the book of Acts is covering about 30 years, progressive revelation means you and I, but all of us now today have more revelation of the understanding of the scriptures than when we first began this journey, right? And God through time 
keeps revealing to you truth of this book. That's what you call progressive revelation. So the book of Acts is written in light of progressive revelation. So the latter writings of the Apostle Paul, as an example, is more of more progressive revelation than perhaps his earlier writings on certain topics. Because Paul says he was called up to the third heaven, which we'll get into, and he's talked with Christ, and Christ gave him revelations, and he came back down and he revealed it. Some of his revelations, he had to go to Jerusalem, meet with Peter. He said, hey, Peter, I'm with Christ in the heavens. Here's what he showed me. And Peter said, wow, that's kind of hard to understand, Paul. He says it in the last part of his writings of Second Peter, if you want to read that, the last chapter. And he was speaking to the group of people there. And he said, you know, Paul's, what's Paul saying here? It's, it's scripture, but even though it's a little hard to understand. That's what Peter said about the apostle Paul. But we understand that the apostle Paul is the one that got most of the New Testament of the progressive revelation part. Now, the first up to chapter 12 or so of the book of Acts is about Peter and the rest of it's more about Paul. Well, Peter was more about prophecy. Peter was more about what had been prophesied. Peter came on the scene with new revelation that wasn't prophesied. So can you see a potential conflict? Here's Peter. Now you got to understand something though. The apostle Paul, even though he was saved on the road to Damascus, was still a saved Jew on the road to Damascus. He was just as Jewish after he got the day he got saved as the day before he got saved. So Paul, it's not that he, when he came into the saving grace of Christ, he didn't go non-Jew. He was still a Jew. And so we want to remember that as we continue on, even though when you get to the last part of Acts, Paul's just pretty much done fooling with the Jews. And then he starts citing a scripture out of Isaiah to support it. So I want us to understand about A.D. 65, the book was written, but historically it starts A.D. 33. So we hit in A.D. 33 in chapter 1, and we're working up to the last part of the last chapter, Acts 28. So keep that little thought in mind. I will keep referring to it because when we get through this book, I want you to understand it. I want you to know what you know, what you know. And if I teach it properly, you'll never forget it. You cannot be tossed around by everybody's ideas. But the way I try to teach it is for you to come to your conclusions personally. The purpose of the book of Acts the book records the ascension and promised return of the Lord Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter's use of the keys. Now, that's an important thing. Peter's got the keys of the kingdom. And, you know, a lot of times we say, well, we got the keys of the kingdom. Well, I'm not so sure about all that, but I do know Peter had the keys of the kingdom. That, that much I know. And so, uh, I mean, I've tried a key or two. It didn't work. Maybe sometimes it does. That's to be debated. Now, so Peter use, has a use of the keys. Let me give you an example. You know, Peter and Paul came together. Here, Peter's running off of prophecy. Paul's running off of progressive revelation. They have a little bit of a conflict. They get together, have a little bit of eatsy-beatsy. They had a, need a little counseling, a little counseling. They had a little argument. And so Peter said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Peter says, I'm going to go to the circumcision, and Paul, you go to the uncircumcision. Now you say, well, I thought they were supposed to go to everybody. The only thing I can tell you is Peter exercised the keys of the kingdom right there and what was bound on earth bound in heaven. Now, we have this happening a little bit through the book of Acts. You can say, well, why did this change? Well, it didn't really change. It's just that Peter exercised the keys of the kingdom and he bound something on earth and it was bound in heaven because the Holy Spirit had given him that authority. So I'm not really sure God would turn me loose with that. 
be a little dangerous perhaps. And maybe he does, but I don't know if it'd be too wise. Okay. Now Luke was to show how God had a secret. In this writing, in the book of Acts, he, he starts giving a revelation that God had a secret to tell the world that included both Jew and Gentile on equal basis. So Luke, now remember, Luke wrote it in about 65. Paul comes on the scene in Acts 9. Conflict starts in 12, 13, 14. You start having different revelations. Peter's talking about prophecy, and Paul's talking about these revelations he got. Peter said, you killed the king, you bunch of Jews, you killed the king. Then Paul runs up there and said, I rejoice in the cross of Christ. Peter's preaching in Acts 3, 4, Peter's preaching a murder indictment to the nation Israel. And Paul then a little later on comes tiptoeing through the tulips saying, I rejoice in the cross of Christ. Causes a little conflict in Jerusalem is my point. <laughs> but we need to understand they both were true to the scriptures. They both were being true. And we've got, and it took 30 years. Did I say 30 years? It took 30 years for that, not conflict, it was a conflict, but it took 30 years for the prophecy scripture. Something happened and God put a halt to the prophecy scripture and started up what he called a mystery or a secret scripture. And then y'all heard me teach in Revelation of parentheses. When we get to Acts chapter 2, we'll speak about the prophecy of Joel. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, flesh, as Bob Jones said, upon all flesh. And young daughters will have dreams and visions in this stuff. Then it says you'll have great signs in the heavens. Well, we know that right there, there was a halt in that prophecy. And we know that that halt, or, or call it a parenthetical insert there, the parentheses in that scripture have now been going on for 2,000 years. I mean, if y'all have noticed the sun and moon, it's all that. The earth's not dissolved yet. We're still here. The proof of us being here is proof of what I'm saying is true. So for 2,000 years, we've been stuck into this parentheses of this prophecy of Joel. And then Luke goes on to tell about it. He explains about it. And you got to understand about nine, eight, nine, ten of Paul's writings are to be inserted in this 30-year period of Acts. So Paul's getting these revelations running around, spouting them out everywhere over this 20, well, actually been 25 years he was doing that. But he's running around spouting this stuff out. He's getting his revelation. It's part of the mystery or secret of God, Ephesians 3. The very fact of us sitting here as a church is a secret or a mystery, according what us sitting here is not in prophecy, you see. Us sitting here is what was called a secret or a mystery. And, and we're called this privileged crowd. A lot of people want to be created equal, not this cat. I'm in the privileged crowd of the grace of God. This thing is so cool, if we're not careful, we won't appreciate it. On one hand, this thing is so easy, it'll go over our heads. And another one, we won't appreciate it for what it's really, what's really happening here. My hope it would be that when we get through the book of Acts, that I really was hoping when I got through Revelation that that would be the Lord would come back. Now I'm shooting for another goal. At the end of the teaching of Acts, that he'll have his soon return. Okay, we'll see how it works out. And if it ha happens that way on the way up, I'm going to say I told you so. If it doesn't happen, I'll just move my marker up the hill a little bit. Now, okay. Luke was to show how God had his secret to tell the world that included both Jew and Gentile on an equal basis. This was to be done mainly through Peter and through the Apostle Paul. Peter was the minister of the circumcision, Paul to the uncircumcised. There again, that is Peter using the authority of the keys of the kingdom. 
Let's look at it here. It's in Galatians 2, 7. But contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, this is Peter, of Paul, and as a gospel of circumcision unto Peter, for he had wrought effectively in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, which is Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. Now you see that? I mean, take that to heart. What he's saying, words mean something. He said, as they perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So what they were saying was they perceived, and that was done through the Holy Ghost, but they perceived this grace that was given to them. And what I want you to understand, that this grace this unmerited favor, this secret that was given to Paul to release to the world, Peter recognized it as from God. That's not prophecy. That's mystery. That's secret being revealed. Now, can we look back in Old Testament and say some, some hidden things was there? Yes, but they didn't understand that. In, in other words, when Judas, when Satan had, I've said it before, but it's probably redundant, I know, but please listen. As Judas, as Satan entered Judas and betrayed Jesus, no one knew the scriptures any better than Satan. He knew them frontward and backward. So Satan entered Judas Iscariot, caused him to betray Jesus, because his goal was to kill the king just like King Herod. I didn't get him when he was a little one. But Jesus said, I'm going to, I mean, Satan said, but I'm going to get him today. So he enters Judas, betrays Jesus, has him on the cross. Now the blood atonement of Christ is forgiven of all forgiveness of all sins, which we all know. It's incredible. But I present to you, if Satan would have known that truth, would he have done it? He wouldn't have done it. Satan slid his own throat, so to speak. God didn't even do it. Can you hear me? God didn't pronounce that on Satan. Satan did it to himself. He was so ridden, he was so driven to kill the Christ that he stumbled over truth to be revealed. He moved too quickly. Now, I caution all of us with that spiritual truth. In these last days and where we are today, I caution all of us not to move too quickly until God reveals his total plan and what's really happening. Are you with me? So what happened there? That secret of the cross of the blood atonement of Christ was the forgiveness of all sins. Seems totally elementary to us. But that truth had not been revealed yet until God caught the apostle Paul into the third heaven. Now, as he revealed it to some of the apostles and prophets, they wrote about it. John wrote about it. That's the reason it's important to get these chronological events in their proper place so you can tell this revelation came here. This. Now, one thing you got to remember about God, when he gives a revelation, he doesn't have to change it. That's the cool thing. If you ever get a revelation, understand there might have been two or three in between what you got that you hadn't got yet. But ever what revelation you got, God doesn't have to change it. It's really, God's very confident of himself, right? <laughs> and so he is so confident that when he says something for eternity's sake, he never has to change his mind. So whatever, that's the reason do I believe my biggest problem years ago, 30 some, closer to 40 now, isn't it? So many years ago, when I was at the place of saying, God did not heal today. When I was there, I had certain revelations, but I had broken the main rule that God showed me in hermeneutics and, and understanding scripture. This is the main one. When God says or, do some, or does something, he never has to change his mind. His blueprint is so perfect 
He doesn't have to budget for a time he's got to change something. So it was a hermeneutical law. It was, it was, it's a law of understanding Scripture that when God says something, he doesn't have to change his mind. So when I learned that, if God said that there would be healing, what's the answer? Well, yeah, he is continuing. Yeah, I can say, well, yeah, God, but I've prayed for people and they hadn't got healed. Well, I'm sorry, but God hadn't changed his mind. So there's something I'm not getting, right? But that's not it. When God says it, it continues. Because when God says something, it just turns into a law. God can't speak without a law. It turns into a law. It's just going to happen. That's the reason he tells us with sin, the wages of sin's death. See, he doesn't change that truth, but he can do something on our behalf in light of him saying that truth. Are you with me? That's just a law. God's not going to change that law for me and you, but he's going to give us a provision where we can have a soft landing, right? Yeah, God's for us. He's not against us. So God said all this stuff. I often wonder, is God sitting there and saying, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I mean, I don't know, because he's went to a lot of trouble to help us work with what he said. And so as we see that happening, we see the Word of God and how His, how his truth unfolds, we start understanding. How did I get on all that? Okay, number eight. All right, when James, they gave to me bars, right hands of fellowship, that we should go into the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Okay, here we see a commissioning to two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, only to find out that in latter writings, the Apostle Paul starts including Jews and Gentiles into one body, neither Jew nor Greek. Now, it used to be under prophecy, if we went into a Jewish synagogue as Gentiles, we had to sit on the back row. We weren't really a Jew. We had to sit on the back row. They allowed us in, but we had to, to sit at the back. It's called a proselyte, that you're being courted, or so to speak, but you're, you're a proselyte. When the Apostle Paul came on the scene, this stuff changed, but you got to understand, Paul was still a Jew. Now, let's go. Now, the book of Acts is in two basic parts. In the first sections, chapter 1 through 9, verse 43, Peter is the main character, Jerusalem is the center, and the ministry is to the Jews. That's the main focal point of that first part. Now, you've got to understand, Peter's commissioning, and you can see it in Acts 3, Peter's commissioning was to preach unto the Jews that they had killed the king, and if they would repent of that, and, a caveat here, receive him as their Messiah, saying a lot, right? Receive him as their Messiah. Peter said, he will come again. He will come at the times of refreshing. Come from the presence of the Lord, he says. He calls it a time of refreshing at the second coming of Christ. So Peter was preaching the second coming. That was his message. If you'll repent, receive Jesus as the Messiah, then God will send him again called the second coming of Christ. Now, we all know, sitting in this room, that the Jews have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah, even today. So we know the second coming of Christ hasn't happened yet. Can you see then how to say, when Jesus came into your heart, some people call that, it's called replacement theology. They say when Jesus comes into your heart, that that's the second coming of Christ. It's called replacement theology. And so therefore they say the actual literal second coming of Christ isn't going to take place. It's already took place and it's in your heart. The only problem with that concept, it breaks too many scriptures. The Jews have yet to accept him as Messiah. So the second coming can't happen yet. Do you see it? It can't happen. Is the second coming of Christ, is that symbolic or a metaphor, a spiritual, which we have that all through Scripture, an allegory 
of Jesus coming into my heart. You can, but it's not a second coming for me. It's a first coming of Christ into my heart. You can see how you can play with Scripture called replacement theology, and it's a bunch of other stuff that goes with it, which messes with Scripture. Now, what I want us to consider, especially viewing the book of Acts, is there is a literal interpretation of Scripture. You can just hang your hat on. It's going to happen. And then there's a spiritual application, uh, application to Scripture. And we, I think, all understand that. But a spiritual application doesn't do it the lit- way with a literal application. For some reason, the way God likes to do this thing is show and tell. He likes to create something you can see to teach you something about something you can't see. It's the reason in Romans chapter 1, it says, you can look at the creation. God said, just look around you. We know that that's a language of God. That's all. He didn't ask you if you liked it or not. That's just the way he does it. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but God uses English only if he has to. Evidently, he considers it a pretty poor way of communication. He'd rather just do it through his Holy Spirit to your heart from his heart. One fellow told me, he said, well, I can't wait till we're telepathic. I said, you already are through the Holy Spirit of God. The Jews were in sin by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So as we're studying the book of Acts, I need you to constantly keep several main topics. One is the first part of Acts. We do have the outpouring of the Spirit, true. But also with that outpouring of the Spirit, the Jews were, Peter was still trying to get the Jews to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And we know this will happen one day, but it hasn't yet. Therefore, the preaching was directed to them to have a changed mind and repent. First of Acts, this is the preaching, this is what's going on. The Old Testament promises of the divinic covenant, which we know that. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about the Abrahamic covenant and the divinic covenant. Your New Testament opens up with the first verse, first chapter, about the Abrahamic covenant and divinic covenant, two covenants God made with the nation Israel. Just remember, Abrahamic covenant is about land. Davidic covenant is about a king sitting on a throne ruling and reigning over that land. The Old Testament promises of the Davidic covenant were explained by the promises that the kingdom would be set up at the return of Christ. This is what Peter was preaching. He was preaching about this. And they're saying, well, why did they not think that... See, we know that the apostles thought that Jesus, while he was on earth, was going to go to Jerusalem and rule and reign, right? We, we understand that, that that's what they thought. They didn't have the revelation yet that he was to conquer death. Even though it's in the Psalms, they did not have that revelation of that. David, and this is in Acts 2, 25, Peter is referring back to this as he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. In Acts 2, 25, he refers back to the foretelling of Jesus after resurrection. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's speaking to the people there. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So Peter is referring back to David, saying, I understand now 
Jesus had to die, but he has already been resurrected. But if you'll repent, did they repent of killing him? No, they were repenting of not receiving him as the Messiah. And he said, if you'll repent of that, guess what? He's coming back. If that's the case, when is the second coming of Christ? It's when the Jews start repenting. Are they repenting right now? No. When they start repenting, now we have the Zionist movement, we call, I think, is that the right name for the Jewish believers, Zion believers? Messianic, Messianic. The Zionists were the ones in 48, 7, 48. They started the nation. So we do have a group that have received Jesus as their Messiah, and they see themselves as that group that starts receiving Jesus as the Messiah. I receive them as in the body of Christ. There's an argument here. Some people say, well, they either have to be a one or the other. I'm like, well, they can be in both as far as I'm concerned. I mean, who cares? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> because I've been grafted into them. So, I mean, who, where are you going to argue that one? We're all together. But yet, when we start, my point is, though, when we start seeing the Jewish nation start repenting, receiving Jesus as the Messiah, we know that the second coming, you know, it, it could be pretty close. And you've got to understand the purpose of the tribulation period is for the Jewish nation. They're going to go through all this hell and high water. Then towards the end, of, they're going to repent. Then they're going to hide. He's going to hide a bunch. He's going to have 144,000 of them go out and start giving the message. But my point is the repentance of Israel about the Messiah is the trigger to the second coming. Now, the rapture of the church Here's why people have problems with it. The rapture of the church is tied into the mystery and the secret. It wasn't prophesied about. Well, if you're going to receive the grace that you're enjoying today is under the mystery and secret, I'm sorry to inform you, but you got to receive the rapture of the church too. You don't have to. I would just suggest it. If you don't want you can't. It's hard to have it both ways biblically. That's all I'm saying. But you start understanding how the rapture of the church works. Okay. The book of Acts. The second division is in chapter 10 through chapter 28. If you ask me how many chapters does Acts have, it has 28. So it's through the end of the book. Paul is the main character. And a new center is established at Antioch. And the ministry is chiefly to the Gentiles who were strangers from the covenants of promise in Ephesians 2.12. They had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So technically the Jews at that time had to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Technically, if you want to really get picky about it, what we believe is Jesus' blood is the atonement of all sin, and He is the Messiah. That's the reason I say three includes one and two, but one and two don't include three. In other words, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that His blood is the atonement of all sin. The Jews at that time, in Acts 3, just had to repent that they did not receive Jesus as the Messiah. That's where they are today. And then when they do receive Jesus as the Messiah, with the full revelations that's of the mystery of the blood of Christ, just so happens right before the second coming, they'll believe all of that. You've got to understand one technical problem. When they build a temple in Jerusalem and start back blood sacrifices, you'll know they've not received Jesus as Messiah. That's what they're trying to do. So the blood atonement of Christ goes with the message that he's the Messiah. If they're still trying to build a new, the third temple so they can return to blood sacrifice, everybody can say, whoopee, isn't this great? The answer is whoopee, no, it's not great because the atonement has been made. They're not receiving the truth. Are you, are you with me? As we progress through this book of Acts and understanding it. Chapters 11, 12, 15, and 28 are what we call transitional establishing the distinction doctrinally between law and grace. We'll make that distinction 
of law and grace. Now, let me say this. Ultimately, it's hard to say that the whole thing of mankind's not under God's grace because it is. But nonetheless, there's a time of law that had to be fulfilled and a time of grace and will establish. A transition means you're moving from one place to another. The book, whole book of Acts is considered a transitional book. It means you're something shifting from here to there. And I'll stop with this one. This one, Galatians should be read here to have this understanding. Now, it just so happens when we get to this stuff, as we progress through the book of Acts and we come where the book, First Thessalonians was written in the book of Acts period. Here we're going on 30 years, and all of a sudden, year number 42 or whatever it is, the first book Paul wrote was First Thessalonians. We're going to insert it right there, and we're going to jump out of Acts and skim over First Thessalonians. I'm going to show you how it fits into this Acts scheme, and you'll understand what revelations are there. You see what I'm saying? There's a certain amount of revelations in First Thessalonians. And once you start seeing that thing going bam, 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 you're like, wow, how in the world did God do this thing? It's just absolutely amazing. Now, I do caution you. Once you see it, you'll never change. Once you see it, no TV preacher can change you. They're out of business because you're going to see it for yourself in the Word of God. Amen? Okay. You've been very good while I've been trying to breathe and talk. I'll try to be in better shape next week. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day that you've made. We thank you for the revelation of your word. And Lord, you know our deal. The only way I can stand up here is I'm trusting that these people will be good Bereans and they'll test everything I'm saying. It's my goal, I hope is your goal, oh God, that we understand your word, your will, and your way. That we might stand flat-footed, not persuaded by some fancy somebody, every wind of doctrine. That we can't be changed, that we know what your word says. We understand it. And it'll cause us to be more courageous, more bold, have incredible courage that we might take the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Anoint us this day in our worship. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.